some of the most exciting and innovative work taking place in healthcare today revolves around redesigning redesigning processes with the optimal patient and family experience as the starting point, the ending point, and everything in between. My guess is most of you joining this edition of WIHI know exactly what I'm talking about, and I can't think of a better issue to return to after an August break than the work that's beginning to transform the goals of many improvement initiatives, and perhaps as importantly, the way these initiatives are carried out. One amazing example of help to do this kind of work are Always Events, a program of the Picker Institute, and that's our focus on this edition of WIHI. Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So let me now introduce our guests. When it comes to unrelenting focus on the needs and experiences of patients and families, according to healthcare's most important eyewitnesses, patients themselves, the Picker Institute has played a significant leadership and research role for years. Lucille Hanscom is the organization's executive director, helping to steer the Always Events initiative. For the past decade, Lucille, who tells me I can also call her Loewy, managed the boards of directors of the Picker Institutes in Germany and Switzerland. Among other things over her career, Loewy's done a lot of work on what constitutes a good quality of life for residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Loewy is joining us from Camden, Maine. Welcome to WIHI. Thank you, Madge. I'm so pleased to be here today. Terrific. So working alongside Loey and Lucille Hanscom and others at Picker is consultant Dale Schaller of Schaller Consulting Group. Dale has a long and strong history of researching and measuring patient and family experience in healthcare. Many of the well-known survey instruments and measurement tools are thanks to Dale's work. He's doing work right now with the Robert Wood Johnson's Aligning Forces for Quality program and has developed the Talking Quality website to guide those who want to learn from consumers about healthcare quality. Dale's on the phone in Minnesota. Welcome to WIHI, Dale. Thank you so much, Madge. Glad you're here. We're going to hear about Always Events grant recipients on today's program, and Dr. Anthony DeJoya is among them. He's an orthopedic surgeon at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and now one of the leading forces behind a patient and family-centered methodology and practice that spearheaded some 40 working groups in the UPMC system. If you've been hearing about shadowing and flow mapping and guardian angels, they've become cornerstone principles that are at work transforming UPMC and that many other organizations are learning about. Tony's going to be also telling us about some new projects thanks to support from Picker. He's on the phone in Pittsburgh. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Meg. I've not had the pleasure of working with Gay Smith until we started planning our program. Gay is the Chief Patient Experience and Service Officer at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She has a 35-year history in healthcare management and is now deeply involved in work at Vanderbilt that provides a big base of support and context for the Always Events work we'll hear about, plus a whole interesting endeavor across the institution. Welcome Gay Smith, who's on the phone in Nashville. 
Thank you. I appreciate being here. Okay. And someone in the studio with me, not on the phone, is Martha Hayward. Martha is the lead for the public and patient engagement at IHI, helping the organization develop a comprehensive strategy. She's building on an extensive career of healthcare consulting and leadership and deepening the role of the Patient and Family Advisory Council, uh, prompted in part by her own healthcare situation. Martha is a keen observer of the Always Events work, and we're glad she can be part of the discussion. Welcome, Martha. Looking forward to it, ma'am. All right, guys. Okay, so it took me a few minutes to introduce everybody, but that's part of the instruction today is get to know who some of the people are who are involved in this work. Um, I also want to acknowledge as we get underway that John Gothier, part of the WIHI team, he's going to be tweeting about today's program, and if you want to follow uh, his tweets and retweet them, they're at hashtag IHI. So let's get underway. Uh, I've given Loey and Dale from Pick and uh, sort of the unenviable task of telling us about a lot of things in a very short amount of time. That's because we really want to maximize your opportunity to get in questions and comments. So, Loie, let's start with you. There's no question that you and your colleagues came up with a very compelling name and concept here, uh, the flip side of never events, if you will, but very connected. So uh, go ahead and explain to us uh, what's up here with Always Events. Welcome again. Thank you, Matt. For over 25 years, Picker Institute's mission has been entirely dedicated to patient-centered care. In fact, it was Picker Institute who coined the term patient-centered care. Early on, through a course of a seven-year research project with Harvard University, the Institute developed the eight principles of patient-centered care, which today remain a gold standard and are uniformly accepted by the healthcare field. This early work also resulted in the first scientifically validated patient experience survey. Although the Institute no longer conducts patient experience surveys in the United States, the healthcare field remains impacted by that seminal work as methodology for CAPS and HCAPS derived directly from the type of work that Picker did. Today, the Institute's mission remains steadfast and our patient-centered care goals are to advance, ed, advancing through education, research, and dissemination of best practices. In the new 2009, Picker Institute embarked on a new strategy, one it hopes will sweep the nation's healthcare systems and become a national strategy for advancing patient and family-centered care. Its title is Always Events. At its core, the concept of always events was designed through a process that involved distilling down to its essence and then evolving beyond the eight principles of patient-centered care. Picker Institute has designed a program and a strategy that, as opposed to never events, will embed within the healthcare universe aspects of the patient and family experience that should always occur when patients interact with healthcare professionals and the healthcare delivery system. 
Okay, Loie, thank you. And we've got up this nice uh, slide here uh, from a booklet. A reminder that Vicki Minden here, as well as you can Google Picker Institute and find all this stuff. There's a lot of research sources will sort of flip up onto the slide area of the program, but rest assured you can find a lot of this stuff. You can download what we've offered you uh, at the end of the program. So that uh, presents a nice timeline. Um, I want to just right at the very top thank Loie for coming to IHI and WIHI with this idea of having a discussion with all of you. And I'm very, very grateful uh, for the effort here uh, to uh, support this kind of work and to help get the word out, continuing in a very uh, wonderful tradition at Pickers. So thanks, Loie. Dale, why don't you pick it up from there? Um, What we've got here is a sort of a kind of a framing here. But uh, so how does the Always Events... um, kind of program work and what are you doing? So the Always Events Initiative uh, is, we think, especially timely and relevant because it's got the potential to dramatically raise the bar on expectations that both healthcare providers as well as patients and families have about what the patient family experience can and should be. Uh, Lowy had mentioned these surveys developed by Picker that have been transformative and have laid the foundation for now the CAPS family of surveys that are used widely. And we know that on the basis of data collected from these surveys that the system is far from performing at optimal levels. As a new organizing principle, we think Always Events has the potential to help kick the system into a much higher performance gear by galvanizing both action and accountability for things that should always happen as part of the patient and family experience. So it's important just to set the stage to note that we've introduced the Always Events uh, as an open architecture concept um, because it will encourage healthcare organizations in this early phase to be really creative and innovative in defining uh, what they think are always events and uh, strategies and processes and programs needed to achieve them. So although we don't yet at this point in time have a sort of defined list of specific always events, they all do relate to one of the eight fundamental picker principles of patient-centered care that Louie mentioned. Uh, In order to demonstrate how this concept can actually be implemented in practice, last October the Picker Institute launched the Always Events Challenge Grant Program, which had a terrific response and resulted in the Picker Board awarding matching grant uh, funds totaling uh, almost a million dollars to 21 leading healthcare organizations across the country, and you'll hear from two of them on today's program. The interesting thing is that the enthusiastic response to this program had very little to do with the money. It was all about being part of an exciting new initiative that has this great spirit of optimism about doing something positive to fundamentally transform the patient and family experience. So even though we have this open architecture approach without a specific list, we've also established um, some guiding themes and some criteria for selecting always events. Let me just mention what those are. Sure, so go ahead. Uh-huh. Each, each one of the demonstration projects relate to some aspect of either communications between patients and providers or between providers and providers on the same care team or transitions of care. And as we all know, those are aspects of the patient and family experience that are really key to good care, but which the system currently doesn't do very well. 
Um, we've also given some structure to um, Always Events selection by, by laying out four criteria. And the first has to do with their being important to patients and families. Secondly, that they be based on some evidence that they're known to be related to optimal care. Third, and really important, that they be measurable. So, so this has to relate to an experience that's specific enough that you can, can accurately and reliably determine whether it happened or not. And finally, that, that, that it be affordable in the sense that these things can actually be done by healthcare organizations without a huge um, capital expense or uh, investment of resources. And we think that's important to kind of help assure the replicability of, of these, these events. So um, the 21 projects are in their early phases of implementation, but we're already seeing some really promising ideas emerge. Um, we think that they can be replicated by other organizations, and we're also seeing this concept being picked up by organizations not part of this Challenge Grant program, but because of the positive nature of this concept that they've already moved on their own to begin implementing some kind of Always Events project uh, within their organization, whether at a specific department or, or even um, organization-wide. So just to conclude, uh, we think this, well, we know, Always Events has struck a really powerful chord across the healthcare continuum. This open architecture quality invites participation and innovation. We're delighted to see the spread. We're seeing the concept grow, and um, we're just delighted that this program can help um, uh, also spread the word and, and inspire some action around this concept. Thanks so much, Dale. If you're just joining us, this is WIHI. You were just hearing from Dale Schaller, before him, Loie Hanscom, about Always Events, a program of the Picker Institute. I want to remind people, if you do go to the PickerInstitute.org website or alwayseventspickerinstitute.org, you can see all kinds of uh, basic facts about the program, plus uh, short, uh, nice thumbnail descriptions of a lot of the programs and what people are doing uh, with the funds and the way in which they're building on their patient and family experience programs already. So I thank you, Dale, for kind of laying out the basics, and this will become a little clearer in, in practice when we hear from Tony DeJoya and Gay Smith. And before I turn to them, I just want to very quickly ask Martha Hayward, who's sitting here with uh, me in the studio here in, in Cambridge, just to say very, very briefly, uh, you've been a real booster of all of this um, and very familiar with it, Martha, even before much before I was, and I'd love to just ask you, why did, why did it strike such a chord with you, this kind of work and, and what they're trying to accomplish? Martha. Well, I, I was listening to Dale's words saying, you know, this struck a pow powerful chord, and I think that the, the key to that power is that this really involves and is focused on patients and families, and it's it's involved in those events that truly affect them and and uh, color the experience they have within hospitals. What I'm really looking forward to is, um, you know, we often forget that a patient's journey uh, through healthcare it doesn't happen in one location; it happens in many. And as always, events become as they storm the nation and become the go the standard for um, how people do the business of healthcare, patients will have more consistent experiences. And with that consistency will come more safety um, and more engagement in the healthcare process. So I'm really looking forward to watching the Always events storm the nation um, and take over. Um, and, and so that patients can rely on and, and we can get to that next place, which is to set expectations 
in the public realm as to what patients can expect when they go into any healthcare institution. Okay, thanks very much, Martha. Okay, thanks a lot. And uh, as I said, we're um, we're sort of flipping uh, through a couple of slides here just to give you a taste uh, of uh, some of the information and more to come. And uh, as you've heard, Vicki Minden here on our team uh, is keeping track of a lot of resources, and that will be posted uh, along with the audio of this program uh, to our website. So let me now bring in Tony DeJoya of, of University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And Tony, you've uh, had a lot, you've been on this program before and you've been talking all around the country and dare I say globally about the work at UPMC in the realm of patient and family-centered care. So along comes the always events and some new projects. Uh, so now's your opportunity to briefly tell us <laughs> uh, about the vast amount of work you're doing and how always events is adding to that. Oh, thanks, Madge. Um, it was um, it was very satisfying that uh, there was this synergy between the Picker Institute's Always event and the kinds of things that we're doing. And I think the the number one goal of all of us and the goal of the methodology that we've developed is what we say is uh, providing exceptional care experience for for patients and families all the time and everywhere. And the Always event is exactly that. And it has to allow us to look beyond the walls of the hospital to look at the whole experience. Now, how you achieve that is, as we know, uh, a challenge. But what we have found is some basic principles that always work are, number one, by viewing care as a whole experience through the eyes of patients and families. And secondly, to permit a co-design of exceptional care experiences with patients, families, and caregivers all partnering to develop that. And as you go through this process, it, as, as Dale has already mentioned, it's over and over, it's communications and transitions of care that really are issues with patients and families day in and day out. One of the challenges, though, is to go from... Whoops, did we lose you? Okay, so Tony will be back in just a minute. We're, we're, uh, we've got Tony's slides up here. He's going to tell us about trauma team texting and uh, guardian angels. So let's do this while we get Tony back on the line. Uh, Gay, why don't you talk about what's going on at Vanderbilt, and then we'll swing right back uh, to Tony. Hate to break the flow, but uh, Gay, are you there? I am. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and, and talk a little bit about what you're doing, and we'll come right back to Tony afterwards. Thanks. Great. I'm happy to share with you what we're doing in our patient experience and service work at Vanderbilt and how we are using the Always Events framework um, to really drive the major culture change at the organization. We are one of the Picker uh, Institute Always Events grant awardees. That particular body of work is around falls prevention. Uh, Carol Smith, who is the director of our patient and family services areas across the medical center, um, is the author um, for that grant work, and we have provided information, which I see is on the slide now, um, for how to connect with her if you have specific questions about that grant project work. Because what I'm going to talk about is how that the Always Events has really been a springboard for the rest of the work we're doing in our group. Vanderbilt's been um, very focused around patient and family-centered care and service excellence across our hospitals and clinics for years now. But my position as Chief Patient Experience and Service Officer was created just a year ago. And the key areas of focus for this position are in creating strategic organizational alignment 
and coordination across the many diverse efforts that impact patient experience, um, defining organizational goals for patient experience and service with metrics to help drive improvement, and building an infrastructure of people, processes, and technology to support understanding and responding to patient and family expectations and needs, including service recovery um, as needed. So last fall, I interviewed um, over 40 key stakeholders within the organization, many of whom were also patients and uh, or family members of patients, and we also conducted focus group sessions with our two patient and family advisory councils. These conversations um, helped us learn about the characteristics of an ideal patient experience and identify processes and areas where we had gaps. And then earlier this year, we chartered a medical center-wide patient experience improvement council. We have the chairpersons for both of our patient and family advisory councils participating as active members on the improvement council. And then one of the subcommittees of that improvement council is a new physician council that's helping us to define and foster a physician-led culture of uh, clinical service excellence. At one of the first meetings for each of those two new councils, we spent time discussing the article by Dr. Tom James on always events and turning never events into a smile. We really connected with his thoughts about identifying the elements of patient experience that should always occur and then re-engineering our processes to ensure that they do, in fact, always happen. We use the data from the interviews and the focus groups along with that framework of always events um, to help us define what would be the priorities in our improvement efforts and we organized around four bodies of work. Um, we've chartered a work group for each of those four improvement efforts and we have representatives from our patient and family advisory council and our physician council participating actively on each of the four work groups. The first team is really working on how to improve the weight experience, that's W-A-I-T. Um, ideally, I'd say that our goal was to eliminate wait times, and that is our aspirational goal. But in the meanwhile, that team is helping us to define uh, what should always, what the standards that should always be met um, to ensure an informed weight, a comfortable environment, in finding ways to um, offer personalized options for how we might engage patients and families during the waiting experience. Um, a second team is helping to develop protocols and processes for discharge phone calls, whether it's following an outpatient visit or an inpatient hospitalization, which we think should be another always event. Uh, some of those calls might be um, relationship building in nature for new patients just seeing our providers for the first time, while others might be more clinically oriented based on patient risk factors, such as an elderly person living alone, um, and still others might be evidence-based follow-up calls to patients with specific clinical conditions that we know have higher instances of readmission or unplanned visits to the ED. A third team is developing robust listening posts uh, for capturing patient and family feedback and concerns. 
Uh, we want to find a variety of ways to invite feedback and level the playing field so that all patients and families feel like they're being heard and that we capture that feedback in a database that will allow us to learn about unmet needs and opportunities for improvement. As we began to define the work for these groups, we realized that we really needed to define the expectations around the Vanderbilt experience. Um, we needed to be clear about what we wanted the patient and family experience to feel like. So the fourth work group is helping us to define a patient and family always promise, which, uh, which we see as a public statement of certain um, commitment uh, that we're willing to make to patients and families so that they can expect um, these um, events or experiences at every encounter with every Vanderbilt person at every point of contact. Um, we actually have several different versions of commitment type statements already in place in some areas across Vanderbilt and then in other areas there's no such statement in place. And this is one more reflection of some of the feedback we heard from our patients and families that we lack consistency in the way we present Vanderbilt, that uh, the patient experience depends entirely upon who you see and where you see them. Uh, so it's been enlightening to watch this work begin to unfold. We use the feedback from the interviews and the focus groups about the characteristics of an ideal experience, and then uh, we use that to begin drafting the promise. We look to other companies within healthcare and outside of healthcare to see what their public statements about customer and patient service standards were. Um, and now we're in the process of vetting the draft version of the promise with our patient and family advisory councils. Interesting, I would note, um, there is no consensus yet on whether this always promise should be a commitment to which we aspire or should be a set of safe statements that we're comfortable we can deliver on. Um, as we've started vetting the draft version, we're hearing concerns that if we fail to meet part of the promise, then we might be held liable for breaking the contract with the patient and family. Um, some have cautioned us that if we're not consistently delivering on each element of the promise, then it won't be seen as setting the expectations and in fact could become an irritant, almost like pouring salt in a wound. However, there are others, um, equally strong voices, that are encouraging us to set the bar high and strive to deliver each element, um, use metrics to monitor our performance and to demonstrate improvement, and then use the, the uh, promise as a tool to aspire to greatness. Some have enthusiastically embraced the, the promise as a foundational piece that we should use then for defining customer service standards, employee performance standards, um, and fostering teamwork. Um, we have been challenged by some of our patient and family members to define the consequences of failing to deliver on the promise. Mm -hmm. That's helped us recognize we need to add a statement to our promise that we will always listen to concerns and provide a response. So we've, um, wow. we will now take all the feedback from the patient and family advisory councils back to the work group and ask them to help us reflect on what's the right balance between aspiration and contract. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I do think it's important to note as part of our culture shift that while we have all had patient and family advisory council members on the work group doing the drafting, um, we took the draft back to the patient and family advisory councils first. So the internal um, committees and councils have not yet seen the draft. Um, we'll take the feedback from the family advisory councils back to the work group and let them um, help us figure out how to revise and then we'll take it forward. Wow, Gay, you uh, probably mentioned so many really interesting <laughs> topics. I'm, I'm sort of been quiet and busily writing down, as perhaps others have been. Um, I want to just uh, thank you for laying out stuff and also really uh, putting forward, you know, just some of the real issues and dilemmas. I mean, what it means to go forward in this area of work and the kinds of discussions that have got to take place, uh, as well as doing the work. So thank you. Uh, we're going to open the chat up in just a moment. We're still trying to reconnect with Tony. Uh, I will tell you, Tony DeJoya from UPMC, uh, that he was, and hopefully will still get a chance to talk to us about trauma team texting and guardian angels. These are two uh, important always events uh, projects that they're working on in the trauma area and the transplant area uh, of the organization. Um, And uh, Tony had also said, even before the program, if uh, not because he was anticipating that he was going to lose a connection, but if there were more questions uh, that were raised today, then we would have time to answer that he'd be happy uh, to get to some of those questions afterwards. And um, so let me do this. Uh, I'm going to quickly turn to Martha, who uh, definitely communicated me with her eyes that she wanted to say something. Uh, and I think it was this issue about aspiration and commitment and, and you know, what, what this all means. And then we'll open things up for questions and comments. Um, maybe uh, after after Martha, I may just ask Dale also very, very fast from Picker whether this has come up. Um, I know, uh, Gay, you were talking in particular about this always promise, a kind of overarching uh, yeah. set of things. So I realize that that has a kind of bold aspect to it. Uh, but let me quickly turn to Martha on this, and then I will turn to Dale, and then we'll open things up for everyone else. Martha. I really love the concept of an always promise. Um, and as I was listening to you talk, I was uh, my brain was working on two sides of the issue, whether to share that promise um, as an aspiration or as an actual. And my, if if you don't mind my um, unsolicited advice, um, always remember that a that a patient is there once, maybe twice, maybe three times, and it, at totally different times. So to set aspirational, um, I often feel like to set aspirational. Uh, Promises to put out an aspirational promise, you sort of feel like you got there before the, the construction began, or before the before the food got into the restaurant. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, and it's a very empowering thing to say to a patient, "We promise this." It's in the moment. I mean, these are crisis situations, and so offer it in the moment. But I think the aspirational piece belongs with staff. I mean, you don't have to communicate. the The public piece should be a piece of um, what the institution is doing. It doesn't have to be the full thing. I think for staff, what I've seen in working with staff, when you get behind these uh, initiatives, they're so uniting. They're so intuitive. They're so brilliant. 
um, and there's so much needed that it really plays into the whole joy of work. And to set aspirations, institutional aspirations, around the relationship with the patient is the culture change um, that you that you said you're you're using uh, the events to drive. And I think that's where the the aspiration should reside. Right. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, uh, Martha. I appreciate that. Dale, do you want to, Dale Schaller, who's been consulting with Picker, do you want to just speak to that? I'm curious whether uh, the kinds of things Gay uh, has raised has come up uh, across the board with their projects there and in the work that Picker has been doing. Well, I think there's a continuum of, of projects. Some are very focused on very, you know, discrete kinds of events that are concrete, very, very measurable, and so the, the, the scope of focus is much more narrow. I think both both the uh, the potential but also some of the kind of pitfalls of, of trying to take the concept and, 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 and blow it up as far as Vanderbilt has done um, is, is something that is, is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Um, and I think the more organizations gain experience sort of doing some things very specifically, concretely well all the time, um, I think that builds confidence and builds momentum, and, and I think the, the, the foundation for that kind of expansion and spread within the organization that, that Vanderbilt has kind of taken this leap this early, I think, is partly because of the culture that it's been built. Um, you know, we've visited before. And there's a long track record there of commitment to um, the, the patient and family experience and that the transformative kind of processes that, that, that need to happen. So I think they're kind of up to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would encourage them to, to take the risk. I can, I can sort of really understand how there's a tension um, about what happens you know, if we get too far out with this promise um, and we don't deliver. But, um, you know, that's the kind of risk I think the healthcare system really ought to be willing to take at this point mm-hmm. and, and, and not, be, uh, not be too guarded because um, not doing so also leaves a number of issues at stake. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for that perspective. Uh, thanks for the, the, the bold idea there, Gay. And uh, it looks like we're slowly getting Tony back. But I think what we should do here is go ahead and open things up for questions and comments, and then I'll sort of slide uh, Tony in here again for a few minutes to tell us about the particular work at UPMC. So, Jesse, very quickly remind people about how to chat. Absolutely. So I'm enacting chat privileges for everybody. Please, when you are chatting, remember to send your message to all participants, all participants, and that'll make sure that everyone on the call uh, or the program can see your messages. So we had an interesting question come in from Brian Fawns um, when we were talking about the promise. Um, He wants to know, what about the patient and family ownership to join in on the promise? What's their responsibility in that relationship? All right, great. Thanks for the question, Brian. Um, I guess, uh, Gay, we'll go back to you on that, and then uh, anyone else who wants to weigh in, feel free. Go ahead, Gay. Well, one of the um, resources we looked to as we began drafting it in terms of an external resource was the work done at the National Patient Safety Foundation and their uh, commitment document, which sort of is a two-sided statement of the role they um Um, obligations or promise from the caregiver side as well as from the patient and family side. So we did look at that as one approach to defining both sides of that question. 
Um, but in this context, what we decided, our, uh, at least where our thinking is right now, is that this is our commitment statement to the patient and family. Um, and one of those commitment statements um, specifically addresses um, bringing them in as the most important member of the healthcare team um, for their care and services. Um, and there's another statement about working with the patient and the family to coordinate their care. Um, but we really have viewed this as um, our commitment to them. Thanks very much. Okay, I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of keep going. And uh, feel free, by the way, participants, I want to remind everybody you can chat in some of your own thoughts about any of these questions uh, yourself, uh, yourselves. You don't need to wait uh, for me about the issues about the sort of patient side of the equation or patient and family side. Uh, Victor Galfano has a question, uh, and maybe either, let me, let me just, uh, I, that might be uh, for, um, Dale, but uh, I guess is liability coming up? Are there examples of liability for not meeting service standards and expectations um, overall or in healthcare in particular? Maybe uh, Victor could clarify that. But uh, Dale, any, any um, awareness of any of that? Honestly, no. I mean, I okay. think that 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 uh, there's a concept that that's kind of similar to what Gay has described at Vanderbilt in terms of the promise. Um, which is this idea of a compact between patients and providers. And it's, it's kind of a non-legal binding but clear statement of what the expectation is between the patient and their clinician about their relationship with each other. And I think um, the more that that contributes to communication and clear expectations about roles and responsibilities and being very explicit about it, I think that can only lead to better care, better relationship, and you know, sort of better outcomes overall. So I, I, I don't, I think it would be a mistake. I'm not a lawyer, but I think it would be a mistake to sort of take a liability potential here and, and kind of blow it up too far. Because um, I, because I, I don't think that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the healthcare system delivering on the things that it should be doing anyway all the time. And so um, to, to, to be held liable for not doing these things seems kind of, um, like we're it's yeah. sort of a misplaced focus. Right. Martha, thanks, Dale. Martha, very quickly, and then I'm going to answer another question here. Yeah. It's just interesting. I, I read that word liability. I saw that word liability is not legal liability, but um, general uh-huh. liability. And I think the greatest liability is to when you break the confidence of a patient because uh, you'll never get that back. So I, on, a, on the non-legal side, on the relationship side, I think there is tremendous liability. It, I'm sure that some of this also relates to the space that's really being opened up around apology and disclosure as well. Uh, so I and, and there are a number of resources that we have on the IHI.org website, Effective Crisis Management, a really nice white paper that's about to be updated. So we, that might be a useful resource uh, for that particular participant and questioner. So I'm going to answer one question very quickly, and then I'm going to turn to Tony DeJoya. Somebody has asked uh, Gay a little bit more about the uh, fall prevention program at Vanderbilt. We did have the slide up there, and Gay mentioned that she herself is not overseeing that particular project. Terrell Smith is. And if we throw that slide back up there, Jesse, we can remind people how they can contact. Very briefly, it says this in the Always Events brochure. Um, essentially, patients and families will always receive information and education to facilitate autonomy, self-care, and health promotion. 
Um, they're going to find out, uh, patients and families will find out how they can partner with the healthcare team to prevent a fall during a hospital stay. Uh, the uh, work here is going to evaluate the effectiveness of adding patient and family engagement strategies across a multilinguistic automated delivery platform to reduce falls, and a generic falls video is going to be produced that is appropriate to be shown in hospitals across the country. This video will be translated into Spanish, Arabic, Kurdish, and Somali, which sounds really, really interesting. So that's just a taste of what the falls prevention work is, and there is an email address for Terrell Smith there on that slide. And anyone... Uh, I'm referring to things that um, mean that you're on the computer looking at things, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, email info at IHI.org, and we'll be happy to send you that information right after the show. All right, Tony DeJoya, we are so sorry that uh, we lost you. Are you back? I'm back. Yay. Okay. So there is a question for you, and maybe we'll just use that. I, we, we needed to move along and kind of into that part of the program, but somebody asked about privacy uh, having to do with the texting for real-time information. So we, you were just beginning to explain these two programs, and now, of course, I have to ask you to try and do it as succinctly as possible, but the privacy issue did come up in a question. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, I think with the uh, uh, care team texting, uh, certainly there are issues of uh, patient confidentiality, but there are issues that we address every day in the way we use technology. And one of the reasons uh, we call this Twitter-like is that it's really the theme of using Twitter with patient as the star and patient as the center and building and using technology infrastructure that we have that does, does respect patient confidentiality in a way to achieve that goal that the patient is the star. So uh, we can use infrastructure that's in place to help address uh, the issues associated with uh, patient confidentiality. Why don't you just uh, explain, uh, again, I, I, I realize that uh, we sort of, we were really literally just in that you were mid-sentence, I think. Tell us what the heart is of the, the texting and then the, kind of the heart of the guardian angels work you're doing. So uh, care team texting came uh, addressing the need when we were shadowing patients that the vastness of the number of caregivers involved with a level one trauma patient and also in communications between patients and families. And the idea that came up directly out of the level one, PFCC level one trauma care working group was to use this Twitter-like concept to place the patient at the center, just like we follow uh, superstars and music stars and all that, but they are the center of their care and that everything should revolve around them. The nice thing with this approach is it addresses uh, the triangle of communications, meaning be caregiver to caregiver, between caregiver and patients and their families, but also between patients and their families, extended. So it, it covers that whole triangle. The Guardian Angel program was directly a result of a shadowing experience where uh, one of our interns, uh, summer interns, followed a patient and their family through the time they were presenting for their lung transplant. And at the end of the experience, the, the mother of the patient turned to the intern and said, you've really been my guardian angel through this whole process. And part of the reason is that these patients and families come in in the middle of the night when the infrastructure of the hospital really isn't even up and ready to support patients and families. And the, uh, the transplant working group took that concept and uh, extended the shadowing into true operationalizing the guardian angel program where now 24-7, 
patients and their families are met when they come in no matter what time of the day uh, to be a unit of the patient and family uh, experience as they go through that, as you can imagine, very intense experience. And both of those have gone from pilot projects to now be becoming more operationalized with the goal, as stated by the Picker Grant, to find ways to accelerate and spread this more quickly beyond to other organizations as well. Tony, how are you linking, um, so I'm curious, uh, this sort of ties into another question that's come in. Are you linking this work with uh, additional patient satisfaction surveys, and does it come under uh, the other systems you have in place for sort of measuring the effectiveness of these programs? Um, yes. It, 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 we, as I mentioned in the beginning, we view all care as an experience through patients and families, so we always go back to the patients and family as our, our number one metric by reshadowing and resurveying and, and uh, using informal surveys. But we also use the HCAPS system for sure in measuring uh, uh, in a more uh, unified way the performance of uh, the improvements, the project improvements in the performance of the care experience as measured by the HCAPS as well. But in the end, we always come back to the patient and their family, and they're the ones that tell us uh, how good of a job that we were doing. And we always use uh, the, the theme of shadowing, in essence, is a real-time patient and family advisory council. So you can get real-time information from patients and families every day and every time you shadow that you could be used and fed back into the working groups to really make change. Uh, two other quick questions. Somebody's asking whether guardian angels are registered nurses. Um, the answer is actually the guardian angels are drawn from an interesting group of uh, students and others. Do you want to explain that, uh, Tony? Yes. Um, so when we began to operationalize this beyond our summer intern uh, uh, ship program that we ran, one of the first ideas from both patients and from the working group was to engage healthcare professionals that are in training. Uh, and we went to both the medical school, the uh, health professions, uh, rehab schools, the nursing schools, and um, approached them as the, and training them to become the guardian angels, which is, is the process that's happening right now. One of the things that you will find with this process, whether it's guardian angel or shadowing, is not only does the shadower provide a very impactful improvement in the patient's and family's care experience, but it also impacts the shadower themselves. It changes the way you view care. So there's no better synergy to have a shadower be a care professional that is going to be delivering care in their career as well. So it's been a very nice tie back to, um, to engage uh, healthcare professionals early in their training to look at what truly patients, what's truly important to patients and families. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, a questioner, Louise, has asked about um, patient satisfaction through care transitions. Uh, that may be a slightly broader question than I'm about to answer. I did want to mention that among the Always Events grantees, the Leahy Clinic is one, and they've got a project going on transition of care. It's called the Transitions of Care Partnership Project. Um, the uh, there's information about that particular program also on the website if you want to follow up with anyone there and there are others in the always events uh, space and I'm sure there are other projects uh, beyond what we're talking about here I want to throw a question uh, maybe to Loie and, and maybe Martha here Loie let me start with you one of the things about what you've gotten going here and sort of
of what it's building upon in terms of work that's been going on all around the country and, and globally as well is all this innovation um, at a time when there's some, a lot of very hard-nosed issues going on for healthcare around any number of issues having to do with reducing infections and costs, et cetera, et cetera. We also have this space of tremendous innovation right now. And I'm wondering, are we mostly still in the learning phase with all this variety of uh, stuff that's going on? And uh, are we at some point going to need to be gathering more of this together to really sort of think about what works best? Loie, let me start with you. Thanks, Madge. Well, I think it's the answer is both. We are still in the learning phase, and definitely these demonstration projects are all a part of that. If you go to our website, as we continue through the next months while the projects are ongoing, and, sub, and, and we'll have a compendium of best practices at the end, it's specific to always events, you'll be able to and I'm talking about implementation, you'll be able to take some of these tools and strategies. And, and when I say you, I mean uh, healthcare organizations nationwide, and really begin to see if they're a fit for your organization. So for sure we're in the learning phase, whoever gets out of the learning phase. But with respect to always events, we are in learning and implementation. Madge, while I've got you, uh, while I've got a moment. On You've got the phone, me on I'd the phone, like, yes. Okay. I'd also like to speak to Gay for just a second. Sure, go ahead. And just, make, just make a short comment. Although Martha touched on the importance of the, um, of the relationship with the patient um, as it relates to um, promises that might not be kept in your always promise, Mm-hmm. I thought I thought more of the from I put on my risk management hat and thought more of it from that perspective in the legal and the downside risk of being something other than aspirational. But I would encourage Vanderbilt, and I look forward to being with you in early November, so we talk about it in person too. I would think of it as uh, remember our old friend Deepak Chopra said about uh, PBS years ago. If not you, then who? No organization is better placed than your organization to really lead forward for our country and show us how this can be done. And I want to thank you for the excellent work that you are embarking upon. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Loie. Martha, maybe I'll just uh, kind of quickly th- throw that at you in terms of our being in this space of, of learning a lot mm-hmm. and uh, ha- how we're going to tr- track it and measure it and begin to better understand what works best. Well, I agree with Loie that we should always be in a learning phase. And But in, in this, my, my initial response is that what we are finally in is a listening phase and an engagement phase mm-hmm. of patients and the public. And that's the transformation that's going to happen. Everybody that's talking is about making these changes. They're talking about making these changes based upon what patients need, what patients want, and really engaging patients in the work so that it has to do with the truth of the patient experience and understanding that patients travel between rooms, between organizations, between doctors, between floors, and without without having... Uh, the patient voice as part of that journey. There are so many gaps and places to go wrong. So I, I think, yes, we're learning, but we're learning in a new way, which is by listening to our patients and their families. 
All right. Thanks very much. I'm going to just say very quickly that on October 18th and 19th, IHI does have a program called the Patient Experience Improving Safety, Efficiency, and HCAPS through Patient-Centered Care. And uh, you can find out more information about that on IHI.org. I think we're about to get to the place of sort of some final uh, thoughts here. And maybe I'll start with you, Dale. Um, We're talking about a lot of interesting work that's underway. Where are some areas uh, that remain a little more untouched, perhaps, uh, by some of these kinds of projects and initiatives if we wanted to kind of leave people with a bit of a challenge to pick up a baton and uh, get some work going in their own organization? Mm. Is that a hard one? <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, I mean, I, I think, again, we're talking about um, a whole kind of constellation of, of, of principles that lead to patient-centered care. You know, we have these eight foundational principles that Picker has established. Um, I, I think if there's a weakness, it's in the systemness that, that we're all confronting. I think, you know, one thing that we know is, is actually pretty outstanding about our country's healthcare system is the degree of satisfaction and, and positive experiences that, that patients have with their individual care providers. I mean, those, those, those relationships generally are very, very highly thought of. I think where things break down is when you get away from the professional patient relationship and you actually deal with how patients interact with this non-system that we have. And, and so why we thought the communication and care transition yeah. areas are so critical to address. And then that's where people fall through the track uh, cracks. And you have sort of multiple people involved in multiple ways that things can go wrong. And, and um, so, so weaving all that together um, and, and how that can be exemplified by these, you know, particular demonstration projects and those that will follow as this concept spreads, I, I, think, um, I think that's the challenge. And, and I, 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 let me just say, I don't think it's that we don't know how to do this. I think that we just haven't done it. And I, so I think this, you know, the power of this concept combined with um, payment changes and, and other kinds of rewards and incentives that need to be aligned in the system um, will we'll actually push us in that direction. Okay, thanks so much, Dale Schaller, and thanks so much for being with us. Tony, okay, terrific. And uh, as sort of part of maybe your parting shots, at least for today, Tony DeJoya, um, I'm going to both uh, throw in a question. There still seems to be some concern on the chat here about privacy and texting. Uh, and uh, I guess I wanted to just maybe have you address that and also uh, kind of what what we can expect uh, sort of next out of uh, UPMC in, in this work that you're doing. Uh, to address the privacy issue, um, again, the, uh, I think you have to think about it. Even we use Twitter-like purposely because it's not a Twitter system, it's not using Twitter to achieve the goals. It's the theme of putting the patient at the center and building the IT around it, and that's exactly what the uh, uh, Picker Grant is, is allowing us to do, to use the, the infrastructure that we know has to be patient, uh, um, has to be uh, address the privacy issue. So that's part of this whole process. So okay. think of it as the okay. theme of Twitter light, but the infrastructure is going to be built around to achieve that goal. I get it. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. And uh, what what should we look for next uh, at a UPMC? Or any kind of evaluation of these programs? Um, any, anything you want to just put on the horizon for us? Well, I think, and one of the nice things with the methodology is that it, 
it establishes a current state and uh, allows us to try to achieve the ideal state. And the ideal state is are the always events. And we take the approach that we use the pilot projects to learn what works and what doesn't work, and then take that information and really begin to spread it quickly throughout the organization. And that's a pathway we've used in the past with other projects. And we hope with Picker support that we'll not only achieve that within UPMC, but then we can look at ways to begin to push this out and accelerate the concept of patient family-centered care to other organizations as well. All right. Thank you very much. That's terrific. And thanks, Tony, for being with us today. And I'm sorry we lost you for a few minutes, but glad you could come back. Uh, I guess, Gay, as maybe your parting words, I want to ask you if you can uh, tell us, uh, should we sort of be looking for this always promise this fall and anything else you'd like to, to, to say as we wrap up today? Um, yes, you'll find our always promise out on our website, hopefully by the end of the year. All right. Okay. And uh, thank you very much for telling us a little bit about what's going on in Gay. We uh, excuse me in, at Vanderbilt, and we look forward to learning more. All right, Martha. Uh, I guess uh, you 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 get the the final word here. And I also want to again thank Loie uh, for really instigating this whole thing in Camden, Maine. And uh, we, Martha. Uh, uh, any any final any final ideas? Well, <clears throat> I was just thinking of what uh, to- I think it was was it Dale or Tony who said it's not that we don't know how to do this. Yeah, just that, uh, yeah. Did it, Dale said it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that we don't know how to do that. Do this. It's that we don't do it. And I think um, from a patient perspective, um, we are now catching up with some ground that we've lost in the healthcare system, um, and we're really. Uh, we're all so familiar with that sort of cocktail party conversation of, um, I had this experience at, the ho- at this hospital. Can you even believe that they didn't know that, that they didn't do that, or that they did this? Um, and I, I see those conversations going away, and I, I applaud this work. It's very exciting um, to me. It's very exciting to IHI. Um, and most of all, it's very exciting for the future of our healthcare system. All right, thank you so much, one, uh, Martha. And you know, one of my questions here that I had in my back pocket is, you know, when w- might we begin to be at a sort of tipping point around this, uh, where I think all of us feel that way. We know of a lot of change that's going on, and that when you're in the random conversation with people, you're still hearing about some of the same things, mm-hmm. and we're sort of wondering when's the balance going to start shifting. Well, I want to thank everybody. Uh, we had a tremendous enrollment response. A tremendous attendance response today. Thank you for hanging in there. Uh, thank all my guests. I cannot tell you how much time and thought people put into uh, developing this program today. We know an hour goes by fast. We can't get into all the details. I encourage you to follow up on all the resources to learn more. Next up on WIHI on September 22nd, we're going after another really big topic, drug shortages, best practices for a crisis. Frank Federico, Mike Cohen, and Lynn Eschenbacher, a really wonderful pharmacy leader. They're going to be on the program, and we're going to dive into that very, very timely issue. You can actually enroll for that program right now on our website. A reminder that we're working on resources that we'll post along with the audio from today's program.
program. So look for that. Any questions whatsoever, if you weren't on the computer and you can't download the slides when you get off today, please info us at I excuse me, email us at info at IHI.org. You can also suggest future show topics. I also hope you'll fill out a survey that you get when you log off the program. We love your comments and suggestions and what worked and what didn't. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shearer, and all of you. Then we have this nice music that opens and closes the program, the original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. We hope you are getting something out of this hour. We know it for some of you, it comes in the middle of the day. Tell others about it. You can download it. We've got a wonderful list. We've got quite an archive now of programs that we hope you'll continue to take advantage of. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>